Any views and opinions expressed are those of the authors and or participants and do not necessarily reflect the views, policy, or position of the Gastroenterology Learning Network or HMP Global, its employees, and affiliates. Hi, this is Millie Long from University of North Carolina, and joining me today is my co-host for IBD Drive Time, Ray Cross from University of Maryland. And we're excited to welcome uh, our guest, Ed Loftus, who's Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Ed. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, yeah, we're thrilled to talk to you about this topic, which is uh, upadacitinib um, in Crohn's disease. Obviously, this uh, has been recently approved, and many of us are gaining familiarity with it in practice. And we know you are involved in the pivotal trials, so we'd love to pick your brain a little bit on UPA and how it's being used in Crohn's disease. Sure, I'm uh, happy to help out. Uh, I was lucky enough to be involved in the, uh, the phase two Celeste trial starting way back when, I think in like 2014 or 2015. So um, I've been in, involved in, in the development program for gosh, eight years now. Well, we'd love to lean on that experience and what you've learned through not only the pivotal trials, but through your use and practice. Let's just start with, could you just give us a kind of high-level summary of the pivotal trial results um, for UPA and Crohn's? So the trial design was very similar to the, the phase three U achieve uh, program in ulcerative colitis. So there were there were two induction trials, induction cohorts that were 12 weeks long. And then the responders in those two cohorts fed into the maintenance cohort. And then that was roughly a year long. So the, um, the two cohorts, the two induction trials only differed in that one of the cohorts, I believe it was UXL, was all patients, oh, well, it was about roughly half of the patients were bio-naive, and then the other half had been bio-exposed. Of the ones that were bio-exposed, it was roughly a third had failed one, a third had failed two, and a third had failed three or more. The other induction trial, UXSEED, was all bio-failures. So that was a little bit more refractory of population. The other interesting nuance in that trial was that steroid taper was mandated starting at week four. And there was a steroid schedule such that ideally all patients should have been off steroids by week 12, which was the, the time of the induction endpoint. And so the, there were there was a clinical remission endpoint, and then there was an endoscopic response endpoint. The clinical remission endpoint was defined by the CDAI. There was also a European stool frequency and abdominal pain-based clinical endpoint. And then the endoscopic response endpoint is the uh, usual decrease in the SESCD score by 50%. So at the end of 12 weeks, uh, in the UXL trial, which was the ones with half bio-naive, um, about 50% about of the patient had met clinical remission if they were on 45 milligrams of upadacitinib versus about 30% in placebo. So the delta there was about 20%. And then in UXC, which included all biorefractory patients, those numbers were like 39% and 21%. So it was like an 18% delta. For endoscopic response, 
the deltas were about 31, 32%. So again, for a week 12 trial, um, I think, you know, endpoint, those were pretty significant. And then in the UNDOR, which was the maintenance trial, at the end of, of that trial, um, roughly, um, you know, 38% of patients on 15 milligrams, 48% of patients on 30 milligrams, versus 15% of patients on placebo were in clinical remission. So those deltas are between uh, 23 and 33%. And then for endoscopic response, it was 28% at the 15 milligram dose, 30, uh, 40% at the 30 milligram dose, and 7% for placebo. So those deltas were anywhere between 21 and 33%. So pretty, pretty good results for a, a fairly refractory uh, population overall. No, and I think that's what uh, struck me too, is we're so used to seeing these 10% deltas that all of a sudden these are pretty high deltas in a population that you described to us that really has failed a lot of therapies and has pretty refractory disease. Is that what you think we should take from these data, that the efficacy is pretty impressive with this agent? Yeah, I think that's um, one of my main takeaways is not only um, the efficacy, but I, I think the speed to onset, um, like there, you know, mm -hmm. it works fairly rapidly. And we saw that in the uh, ulcerative colitis trials. Um, I've also been um, impressed by the tolerability of the drug. Um, and and really um, the, the the overall safety um, and and so I, I overall I, I mean my experience has been very favorable and again it's not just being involved in the trials because during the trials we probably treated over the last eight years probably fifty patients and so um, it's funny it, the irony is that. Um, Last year, when we were having some trouble onboarding SkyRizzy, building up the EPIC infusion therapy sets, everyone was like, oh, we don't care because we'll just use off-label uh, upadacitinib. And that's how comfortable the group felt because everybody had been exposed to it uh, who had been seeing any of the trial patients. Well, and you know, I, you, you mentioned something that we were going to talk about later on, but since you mentioned it, I, I think we might as well have the conversation now, which is that in your experience, you've seen these drugs to be quite safe. And frankly, this is my experience as well. We also participated in Celeste and enrolled a number of patients. I've been using this drug for a long time now, you know, almost 10 years it, it, through the trials and in practice. And that I've been impressed by that too. Obviously, there's some data, particularly the oral surveillance study, that has made us question some of the safety of JAK inhibitors. How do you reconcile those data? You know, how do you talk to a patient about safety? And what are you, are you, do you have concerns um, about this drug or this class in, in Crohn's disease? Well, you know, um, I mean, the question is, is, you know, it's oral surveillance was done with a different drug in a different disease with a different study design. And I know that sounds like <laughs> fancy smart, but in many ways, it's all true. And I think it's hard to extrapolate the results when we're talking about literally a different drug and a different disease. And, and so um, I, I'm also, I've also been reassured by the sub-analyses in, in the room literature that have been coming out on oral surveillance. And basically, 
in oral surveillance, if you were in the younger part of that cohort and didn't have known coronary disease and weren't a smoker, your risk of these adverse events was actually fairly low. And it was interesting, the, 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 the cancer and malignancy events kind of tracked together. So the people that were not having the cardiovascular events generally weren't having the malignancy events as well. So I think you can really make that distinction. Um, if, if you have an IBD patient, they don't have known coronary disease and they're not a smoker, I think it's a pretty safe drug. Mm -hmm. No, very fair. And I think that's a great point. This oral surveillance study, and obviously I think our listeners are aware, was done in an RA population of individuals over the age of 50, many who smoked, who had cardiovascular risk factors, who were also on methotrexate, who were using tofacitinib. So I think that's a lot of extrapolation. And we certainly need to counsel our patients on this, but it's not necessarily something that has made me not use this drug. I, I do like you and just try to understand the individual risk factors uh, for the patient. Millie, I think it's also important to point out to patients, and after I do the counseling, that I'm sure we all do it fairly similarly, that the risk of having poorly controlled disease is not insignificant when you're thinking about clots and cardiovascular events. And then likewise, what are the risks associated with a tapering course of prednisone? So, you know, when I'm thinking about UPA, I'm also thinking about prednisone and vice versa. And if I'm thinking about prednisone, I'm like, what the heck, I might as well give UPA because it's safer than prednisone. So I've been using a lot more for that reason because despite those safety concerns, everything we give is safer than prednisone. Yeah. yeah. And the steroid-free um, remission rates, even as early as week 12, were, were fairly impressive with deltas of, you know, 22 to 27%. So again, like uh, that, that net benefit of getting off the steroids may, um, may actually be clinically relevant, I think. Absolutely. And it seems like, you know, we always think of, or at least I do, of Crohn's as potentially taking a little bit longer to heal, you know, they take longer to have um, a remission potentially than you see. But really at week 12, those were pretty impressive. So even in Crohn's, I would argue that this is a pretty rapid therapy um, that even with, and with the mandated steroid taper, I mean, this was steroid free, as you mentioned. So pretty impressive. Do you think about it that way too, Ed? Do you think that it, it may take a little longer in Crohn's than you see? Yeah, I do. I think it does take a little bit longer. Um, but having said that, um, having treated some refractory patients and also seeing some pretty dramatic endoscopic responses, I think it's uh, definitely in our armamentarium. I think uh, right by the nature of the label, we're not going to be using this as a first-line therapy. We have lots of other options for that, but this, uh, this is a great sort of second, third line um, therapy. It's a nice um, ace to have in the hole, I think, for, for our patients. Well, let me follow up with one last question before turning it over to Ray. You know, one of the things that in Crohn's in particular, we see are kind of some of these special populations where patients may have perianal involvement um, or they may have, you know, quite significant um, extraintestinal manifestations. Were any of these populations studied in the pivotal trials? And what data do we have on UPA in these type of scenarios? Yeah, and, and actually we do. And, and if you recall in the case report forms for this study, um, at every study visit, you were sort of, you know, required to do a perianal exam and record the number of 
fistulas and fissures and draining fistulas. And so there was prospectively collected data, maybe not to the same degree as was seen in like the old infliximab studies like Accent 2, but still pretty robust data. So it turns out, and, and these data were presented by Jean-Fred Collin-Bell, I think at ECHO and then at DDW, about a 14% a of the whole study population had fistulas at baseline. And um, for fistula closure, the rates were 21% with UPA and 6% with placebo. And for resolution of draining, it was 47% versus 9%. And so th those are pretty good. Um, those are pretty good numbers. So there is definitely a sense that you know, and I think that's true with any effective agent. If if you can reduce inflammation, you're going to probably heal some fistulas. Um, so um, I think good numbers. And then for EIMs, um, so EIMs were actually uh, resolution of EIM symptoms was actually listed in the maintenance trial you endure as the last sort of uh, pre-listed key secondary endpoint, they did not make the cut on that. The, the treatment difference was about nine to 11%. And so there was a signal, it just wasn't statistically significant. And recall that you know, since only a percentage of the patients had EIMs, really the study wasn't adequately powered to see. So I think there is a... Mm -hmm. There is a signal there. It just wasn't powered adequately. Also, right, that's all EIMs. And I think, we, we, you know, we, we know from, right, the RA studies that it's effective in RA. So like for purely for spondyl, spondyloarthritis or spondyloarthropathy symptoms, I think this drug um, is, is effective. And I know in my head now, when I see a patient with active IBD and active spondyloarthropathy symptoms, I think I'm thinking usually either an, an anti-TNF or a JAK inhibitor, specifically um, this one. No, I agree with you, Ed. I, I practice similarly. The other thing that I have found, OPA in particular, and, and JAK could be great with is uh, pyoderma, believe it or not. You know, with refractory pyoderma, we've often already tried TNF. We've already tried IL-23 type agents. And the, the jacks in my practice have actually been kind of a game changer there as well. So I'd be interested to see future data on surrounding pyoderma as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, to, to, it'd be nice to break out that data separately, see what that looks like. Well, wonderful. Well, you know, I wanted to, as we break and turn things over to Ray, I wanted to remind our listeners that IBD Drive Time is sponsored by the Gastroenterology Learning Network and Advances in IBD. And there is an upcoming regional that is all virtual September 14th and 15th for our Advances in IBD uh, regional series. So please uh, join us for that in the future. And now turn it over to Ray. Thanks, Millie. And Ed, I just wanted to follow up on a couple couple questions regarding the clinical trial. And one is, I, I was listening to you nicely summarizing the results and the deltas between the active drug and placebo. And I think what is striking is that you don't really, typically we see a fairly significant drop-off in the biologic experience patients, but you don't, you don't seem to see that with upetacitinib. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, I mean, the maybe the top, like in terms of the top line, a the top line numbers, they're a little bit lower, but the deltas are actually pretty similar. So I think 
Right, just by the nature of a biorefractory patient, but the absolute number may not be as good, but there's still uh, pretty good efficacy. And, and um, again, you saw that both for the clinical remission and for endoscopic response in the induction trials that uh, regardless of the underlying population, the deltas were fairly similar. And in the maintenance arm, it, it seemed to me that there's a, a pretty um, clinically relevant difference between the 30 and the 15 milligram dose for maintenance. Um, I think you agree with that. Um, but then when you do get someone well on this drug, are you, you know, we get pressure at times to dose reduce because of the concern about safety. Are you dose, what dose are you using for maintenance and are you dose reducing anyone? If so, who would that be? I'm almost always, when I first go to maintenance, I'm almost always doing the 30 milligram dose. Um, I suppose if you run into a specific issue, um, like, you know, there, there's definitely, I mean, you, you should be checking a CBC and LFTs probably every three months. You do see a little bit of noise around that. And so sometimes you have to dose reduce on that basis. Um, you know, and occasionally you'll see a patient, maybe a an older patient or a frailer patient where they express concerns. And so, you know, selectively, I might consider reducing the dose. But again, I, I've been struck, you know, the more I look at the safety data, I've been struck that uh, we're, it's, it's not a major concern here. And I think that um, Millie and I had looked at the riveting study with tofacitinib and understanding it's different drug, but what was really concerning there is about 20 to 30% of people relapse on the lower dose and they weren't able to recapture everyone. Now, I don't know if that will be the same for UPA, but if we're using this for really refractory patients, is it that safety improvement, if there is an even, if there even is one, is it really worth it to take that risk of relapse and loss of recapture? I say no, and I think Millie agrees with that. Yeah, and I think I think uh, I agree with it. And uh, you know, we always case by case. So you got to look at your individual patient. But ch chances are, if you're going with UPA, chances are you're using this in a patient who's already failed at least one advanced therapy, and often more than one. And so, um, you you know, you got to look at that risk risk benefit equation. And oftentimes, I think the benefit um, far outweighs that risk. So Ed, in in real life, how are you how are you positioning this? So, which patients with Crohn's are you using this in? I think, I mean, literally, you can use it in anybody beyond second line. I guess. Okay, so who would who wouldn't I use it in? Maybe a patient with a recent history of a malignancy. Maybe I would say, say okay, well, maybe we can try something that has a. a a perceived better safety profile. Um, you know, there are very few patients that wouldn't be eligible for this. Obviously, just because of the FDA restrictions, you're not going to use it in the uh, the bio naive pop or the anti TNF naive population. So that, I, that ca I caught you on that. So, are you a purist? Do they have to be? Do they have to fail an anti TNF, or can it just be? they haven't responded to an advanced therapy, purist or practical? I think you have to be practical. Um, you know, we're all pushing the envelope on this. Um, and so we're, I think we're, we're still 
honing our dark art of insurance denial appeals with upadacitinib, like we all have our little means of doing it and we're still working through that. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's reasonable in a bio failure to consider it. Now, are you going to get it approved? Maybe not. So, but but certainly in an anti-TNF failure, it's definitely up for discussion. I mean, you have to talk to your patient, right? There's the, and I always talk about the the patient who's driven by efficacy versus the patients who are driven by risk. And I think sometimes at our centers, we, we, we see more of those risk averse patients sometimes, but um, if they're efficacy driven, for sure, this is this should be introduced earlier in the algorithm, I think, than maybe how we're using it right. Like, right, anytime a new drug comes out, we're, we're using it in, you know, fourth line. But as we get more comfortable with this, uh, it's moving up the algorithm, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I practice very similarly. What about the... Um... We're talking about Crohn's, but Crohn's patients can have severe acute colitis in the hospital, and we know that our UC patients do. Is there a role for this drug off-label in those patients? There may be. It's just that we don't have a lot of data, and I've heard people talking about using like either a 30 BID dose in the hospital or 45 BID. I haven't. We haven't been doing it yet at Mayo. There, there's some kinks we have to work out. I mean, part of the issue is. Um, you know, do you, are you a, like, can you get samples? Are you allowed to use samples? And some of our centers maybe don't necessarily allow samples. And then that, that makes it a little bit harder to pull off, uh, um, such a protocol. But I think, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see the data come out on this. And I think it's a, it's a reasonable consideration. Yeah, anecdotally, we've done it. My partner has 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 gotten a cohort of thirteen patients, I believe, between our site and NYU, where we've induced, and the results are pretty good. And we always assume that high dose is better. We've just been giving the forty five milligram, and I think patients do pretty well. And um, it's certainly easier than cyclosporine and hyperbaric oxygen to give people if they've been on infliximab before, and so. Um, I think it, it's. I think it's going to be in our algorithm at some point someday. I don't know how much data we're going to need for that, but I think it's going to have a role. Um, hey, before I ask you the fun question, Ed, I just want to remind our listeners that we are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so you can find us easily there now and subscribe. And we hope that you do. So, Ed, the fun question: um, Can you tell the listeners something about yourself that they may not know? Maybe even something that Millie and I wouldn't know about you. Yeah, so uh, it's funny that you mentioned Spotify because that's sort of how this happened. So, you know, I grew up in this, uh, you know, I was in high school in the 70s. So like at that time, I was like into music, like, you know, Led Zeppelin. And then I got into like U2 and a little bit of Bruce Springsteen. And then I had this uh, weird thing. I, I've kind of gotten into... Um, like Britpop bands from the 90s, especially Oasis. And I'm kind of obsessed with Oasis. And so like, you know, at the end of the year on Spotify, you get like a, they tell you what you listen to. Mm -hmm. And like, I was like off the charts percentile about how many Oasis songs I'd listened to. So it's, and, and it's kind of a, like the backstory of them is just fascinating. These two guys who grew up in basically, um, you know, uh, low-income housing in Manchester. Their parents had immigrated from Ireland 
and they were basically on the dole and they kind of formed like one of the biggest bands in the UK and um it's it's kind of an interesting story and yet they 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 now they hate each other they don't talk to each other they're <laughs> it's just like a it's a big soap opera so it's kind of uh I'm kind of obsessed with them so kind of I weird. thought you were going to tell me about your interest in Abraham Lincoln history I thought that's where you're going to go with that I, I have that too, but uh, yeah, I was at, we went during the pandemic, uh, my wife and I did a road trip to Springfield, Illinois and saw the museums and libraries and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. So any questions about British pop and Abraham Lincoln, the listeners know where to go. Ed, this has been great. Um, thank you so much for doing this and we hope to have you back another time. All right, thank you so much for having me guys. 